Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights. Um, and also we've got a special guest with us this week, which is Roland Harwood. And this week we're discussing whether big firms really can be innovative. <laughs> So first of all, Roland, uh, tell us about something about yourself, your background and what you do. Okay, I'm Roland Harwood. I'm co-founder of 100% Open, which is an open innovation agency. And I've been doing that for the last eight and a half years. Just recently left working on a new venture, which I'll tell you about next time. Uh, but I'm a physicist by background. I've worked in innovation my entire career. And also a uh, musician, piano player, failed astronaut, lots of eclectic side projects as well, which we may not have time to talk about today. Uh, and sorry, you said an open innovation centre, did you say? Open innovation agency. Agency. Yeah. What's that? So that is a small company based in London, 15 people. And we work with some very big companies, which we're going to talk about today. Um, big multinational companies, governments, charities to access the best ideas, talent, technology anywhere in the world through a range of competitions, communities, programmes. Okay. Okay, so look, let's kick things off. So what we're going to be talking about, as I said, is can big firms really be innovative? Um, 100% open, it sounds like one of the things that one of the key things, or maybe the key thing that you've mm. been doing would be talking about innovation. So let's go straight to that question. Can big firms really be innovative? Uh, give us your thoughts on that. Okay, so th this kind of binary question drives me slightly crazy. I think the answer, of course, is both yes and no. So on the no side, uh, sorry, on the yes side, let's start with that. So companies like Apple or Lego or Ford back in the day, or there's lots of kind of not-for-profit large organizations as well, have been you know complete pioneers in their sector and have done great things and have been innovative. Um, the reason I would say no is because none of those examples and no other examples do that at all on their own. They're part of a much bigger ecosystem of customers, suppliers, regulators, uh, academia that they're part of. Often that gets neglected and forgotten about. But that's what I'm interested in, how big firms or any firm or any organization can develop new ideas, but as part of a much wider system or network or ecosystem. So in your experience, um, what are the sorts of things that prevent innovation happening, specifically in big organizations? Um, politics, bureaucracy, um, inertia, um, groupthink, not invented here syndrome, lots and lots of uh, syndromes and uh, uh, behaviors. I think generally because, you know, a large organization is a, has a, a culture and um, in its own right, uh, just like a, a country or a city. Um, uh, and people want to kind of conform or feel they have to conform because of hierarchy and performance appraisals and, and whatever other mechanisms are available. Um, it is uh, sometimes often dangerous to be risky, entrepreneurial, to have disruptive ideas that maybe are counterintuitive to the current status quo of the business. So there are many, many uh, explicit and often hidden uh, um, incentives or um, to discourage people from uh, actually being innovative. In fact, I've had two meetings in the last two days where people have told me, who both work for large companies that I won't name, that they... Uh, they've been having lots of new ideas for new ventures, but they're not going to give those to their employer because they're too good to kind of give to their employer. And I think that's a sad state of affairs that smart people aren't who are employed and presumably well paid um, to, you know, 
uh, work for that company don't share their best ideas with their employer because they feel that's uh, that's not you know they don't feel personally motivated to do that i'm only sharing that that's in the last couple of days mm. i've had that same conversation with two people and and i know two people doesn't make a trend but uh but it, but it's in my mind as we speak today okay i want to bring in peter or nick um either come and weigh in with your own thoughts or because we've got a res our yeah well i've got here. a few questions yeah really. questions yeah yeah, I mean, we've covered some of the things that I mean, you mentioned a few of the sort of syndromes, the, the symptoms, if you like. Uh, I guess what, it would be an interesting question looking at the causes. What, what factors about organisations, large or small, um, tend to be correlated with or, in your view, actually cause those firms to be more or less innovative? So factors that enable larger firms to be more innovative, I would say, are... Um, uh, an acceptance and tolerance of risk and you know with that comes potential failure um that that's not only tolerated but sort of encouraged um uh, uh a willingness to um embrace a diversity of perspectives both internally and externally uh, and kind of sit with the uncertainty and the discomfort that sometimes comes with that rather than just doing what the boss says or the ceo says um factors that maybe you know discourage innovation are basically the opposites of those so you know ones where there's often too tightly a controlled uh decision making uh, structure um which discourages people to uh, challenge the status quo and pose new ideas and you know maybe a business model that incentivizes them to take that forward i mean you meant because you mentioned apple mm. but i mean my impression from people who worked in apple mm. is that steve jobs when he obviously obviously before he died yeah. uh was quite controlling mm. and quite domineering less controlling after he died <laughs> so i've heard yeah. um but yeah apparently he was quite control so is that is that true is that an unfair caricature of the cult is, is that not repre- is that not representative of the apple culture or uh, i think that is true i think apple is uh, and uh, you could argue that steve jobs in his deified dead state has somehow greater sway than he even did before <laughs> but become more powerful than you could possibly imagine <laughs> something like that like elvis is selling more records now yeah. after his death than he did in when he was alive um uh so it's very hard to compare yourself with apple are they the biggest company in the world now i'm not sure whether whether they've recently been overtaken but anyway they are the exception that probably proves the rule you know almost all other companies aren't like apple but even apple uh, they do, as I believe, I don't know Steve Jobs and I haven't worked directly with Apple, but I believe they set up um, sort of competing teams to tackle the same problem and basically the, the best solution wins out. So that's sort of encouraging a diversity of um, routes forward. They also just quickly, last time I checked, and I'm sure this data is at, out of date, they have four times as many people developing apps for the iPhone than they have employees within the company. So they right. have this very rich, even though they are very controlling and closed in some ways, they do have this very rich ecosystem of creative people around their organization. And that I think is, my, is an incredibly valuable resource. And I mean, my experience from working with you guys is that, um, you know, whatever the question is, the answer will often look like a curated network. So rather than a free for all, you know, a key enabler of innovation is being able to get your hands on the ideas from the right people. And so it sounds like, you know, actually that's that that fits quite nicely with what you're saying, that actually it's the network as much as it's the sort of culture of the organization itself. It's how it can be. 
Yeah, sorry, before you pick that up, Peter? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think they might, the controlling nature of Steve Jobs and the alpha management of Apple might have actually had a positive effect on the problem-solving innovation side of things. So this is something I've had a direct kind of experience of. So they, Steve Jobs was kind of visionary, and he was very good at spotting new ideas for new products and things. And I think he set very difficult challenges to the engineers underneath him to say, right, we're going to make this thing called an iPod with a big screen on it, and it's going to have loads of storage, and it's going to be really nicely built and designed. Go and build that. That's kind of, it was sort of broke the mold of consumer electronics at the time. So it was set a really difficult challenge, which under the right conditions can really uh, promote sort of the engineer, the, the engineer to get, get into problem solving mode and be really innovative. I had experience of this when I was a junior electronic engineer in a company. And uh, we, we did small form factor computers that went into cars and helicopters and things. And um, the, 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 the design was not led by the engineers. The design was led really by the, gar- the, the marketing kind of department, making big promises to customers that, oh, next year or two years from now, we'll have this thing with twice as much memory. Um, and that set us a big challenge of of making it happen. Mm. So well, let, let's sort of turn that into a question then, Roland. So um, is there a track record? Is there any data to show where innovation most successfully comes from within, a, within, within an organization? Well, I, I would immediately say it doesn't come from within an organization. It almost always comes from w- without or outside of an organization. Um, uh, but that might be, you know, inspiration that you draw from seeing a movie to a great idea brought to you by a customer or a supplier. Um, it can, of course, emerge internally uh, as well, but um, just the sheer law of large numbers, it's more likely to come from outside. I am very conscious to your earlier point, Nick, um, having co-founded and run a company called 100% Open, which was all about accessing outside ideas that uh, for a man with a hammer, every every problem is a nail, and therefore uh, it's not necessarily true that the answer to every challenge is a, a curated community. But that's certainly um, potentially a big part of it, and that's um, a big part of what we were doing at Hundred Percent Open. I also think Steve Jobs is a, a consummate storyteller, and so I liked your example, uh, Peter, of um, setting those really interesting questions or hard challenges, and then trying to figure out how how the hell are we going to kind of mm. respond to those. So that's a kind of big part of that. Yeah, I got so I mean I, I I think some of the things I already it's clear, you know, just talking through um some of the some of the sort of unpicking some of these issues about what we think of different firms and how innovative they are and so on. Uh it's obvious that actually what we mean by innovation is quite a complex concept and and I just want to I mean in your what what how is innovation i suppose expressed you know in terms of the bottom line ultimately you know uh we think being innovative is is good certainly in some sectors i imagine more so than others um how does it appear how would you measure it how do you know that a firm was innovative what would you look for um so i think ultimately for a commercial organization it's just about revenue generated from new products or services uh you know over a period of time within you know 12 months, three years, five years, whatever it might be, and the corresponding share price, et cetera, if it's a publicly listed company. Um, I think more often than not, the measures are more kind of activity measures, you know, the um, the, the the sort of excitement and buzz around the brand, the, uh, uh, the 
you know do people want to kind of go and work for this company if so you know why you know apple and lego are the two that i mentioned at the top they certainly um have um attract very good people um which is one of the reasons why they're so different to almost every other organization in the world where they have to kind of fight for talent in a way that you know an apple or a lego mm. doesn't have to because their brand uh is you know really fantastic they have brilliant marketing and storytelling at the heart of so their are google just cheating then i mean have they basically stumbled upon an incredibly successful business model by chance because they were the lucky one out of thousands of people who tried alternatives and now they just buy innovative people and companies or is there something about unique about the sort of approach i'm i suppose what i'm thinking I'm, i've got at the back of my mind the idea of sort of there are a lot of imitators of google's management corporate style and I just wondered if, in fact, it's that's like a sort of cargo cult approach. Well, Google have beanbags and tennis, table tennis tables, so we're going to have that, and that will make us innovative. Um, you know, are, how closely are those things related? Is, 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 the, is it just that actually what Google is really doing is just buying innovation? Uh, or, or is there something about Google's management structure which makes them, which encourages innovation? I think most companies, when they get big, most of the time, all they are doing is buying innovation. They're buying people or they're buying companies or they're buying technology that they then integrate and scale. And the same is true of a Google as anybody else. I think there's a huge amount, uh, two things which are often overlooked, and I think this applies to Google. One is uh, timing. So, you know, phenomenally smart guys who created a better search algorithm um, uh, than existed, you know, by an order of magnitude at the time. Um, but had they waited three months, six months, you know, the world could have been very different. Uh, and the whole beanbags and the corporate culture is a is a legacy from that. But I don't think that's really got anything to do with it. The other thing which definitely relates to Silicon Valley companies of the ilk that we're talking about is public subsidy, defense spending. A lot of this stuff is very unglamorous, but a lot of these companies have been built on patents and technology that has often been developed uh, deep in DARPA or defense kind of laboratories, which is, I know, a world that you two know quite a lot about as well. So yeah, is which, it fair sorry. to say, well, I just want, I mean, if you want to be, it's like if you want to be, uh, you, 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 is it so if you want to be innovative, first become successful, and then it's easy to be innovative. Uh, or, you know, is it actually, I mean, do is it does it benefit small companies to try and imitate that approach? You know, is it can small... We're asking about whether big companies can be innovative. I think we've sort of concluded that obviously they can, but they won't necessarily be. They have to try. What about the small companies? Are they a small company? Is it a myth that small companies are more innovative? Or, I mean, just I mean, sorry, I'm not I'm not the innovation expert, but um, I can think of because uh, you, you ask, can you be success? Is it success comes first, then you innovate? But I can think of a, a company, Groupon, um, who straight from the get go. They, they weren't a company and they just started out as a daily deal company and that in itself was an innovation um, and be able to harness a, a, a large number of people and that and they just went straight from there. So I would say that the innovation came first. Anyway, um, Roland. <laughs> um, I think what I was going to say, partly to pick up on uh, both Nick uh, and Fraser, your question, I think large and small companies whether it's Groupon or somebody else, but they both have a different role to play in the innovation process. So if, if innovation is about coming up with some kind of new way of doing stuff and then making that successful, um, often small companies, smaller organizations are good at coming up with new ways of doing things. And then larger organizations are good at making those successful and kind of scaling those. It doesn't always have to involve large and small organization collaboration, but it often does. Um, and so I think they just play different roles in 
um, uh, in the innovation process, which is why the opening question, can large firms be innovative? I think, yeah, the answer is yes, but it's part of a kind of wider, wider ecosystem. Uh, just r- touching back on measures and things. So you, you, you talked about lots of measures about uh, companies doing new things. So like uh, new, how, measuring them in terms of revenue by new services or products, etc. But uh, it, it, it kind of, to my mind, there's like another kind of innovation, which is doing the same thing, but in a new way. So take a boring company that provides water or something. They That's what all they do. And that's all they can do and all they should be doing, really. But they might improve their internal processes. Deliver it by drone. That's deliver how, it by that, drone. That's how they I might, want to get my water in future. Yeah, so they might they might do things differently and they be more efficient in results. So, yep. um, so is there a am I right in thinking that companies often are biased in their view of what innovation should be, and they they some companies see themselves as not needing to innovate because they're just doing a thing. Um, and they think innovation is all about doing new things. And they think, oh, well, maybe yeah, we don't need that. We don't need innovation. Yeah, so this is one of my kind of bugbears is that there's so much obsession with these kind of chef drones or blockchain or whatever the kind of the, the hype, uh, you know, technology or, or meme of choice might be. And the vast majority of the time, it's, you know, just tightening the washer on the pipe so it doesn't leak as much uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, will have a greater impact on your business, uh, you know, in the short to medium term yeah. you, but you can't just keep on tightening the washers you do need to keep an yeah. eye on the drones and the blockchains in case it disrupts your business in the future yeah because this, this is something I've, I've felt directly in the civil service for example that you know there's very well defined well very de- sort of delineated things that teams and departments should be doing in the civil service yeah. and i was always trying to make things different make things you know make the the average hour of a person in the civil service better mm. Oh, yeah, most ideas fell on deaf ears, and that's one of the major reasons why I left ultimately, because there just wasn't any appetite for rocking the boat in any way, because yep. they kind of thought they had it nailed and everything was working, uh, and they were doing what they was asked of them. No, no desire to actually sort of improve efficiency where you could squeeze a few more percent out of kind of the productivity of any. Well, I don't think that's unique to the civil service. I think I see that in every organisation, large or small, small, especially large organisations. Um, I think if you sat with your former colleagues honestly they wouldn't necessarily i'm sure they wouldn't claim that this is the most optimum efficient kind of model mm. but they just had no incentive to really do anything about it mm. and and that's that's the problem you said something earlier nick which i wrote down i think before we started recording the best time to start doing anything is now and the problem with a lot of innovation is it sort of outsources responsibility for doing stuff um to some shiny new future utopia that we're going to build uh, and it actually delays action uh, and which is unhelpful. So that winds yeah, me up. Yeah, one thing we haven't, because uh, we haven't discussed, uh, we haven't, haven't mentioned any economic theory yet, which is kind of weird, but uh, there is, the theory doesn't get you anywhere, I'd say. Uh, in fact, if anything, it sort of backs up what Roland said and, and what the, you know, the few bits of research. And innovation is a hard thing to research because it, it is quite hard to measure. It's hard to gather the, the sort of enough details on a, a company you know, to measure the factors of a company which might be influencing it. Um, but the theory says essentially that, uh, you know, large firms stand the most to benefit and, of course, have more more resources. But, of course, uh, their innovation, their attempts to innovate are going to be less efficient because of, you know, institutional size and friction. And, in fact, that that's if you look at the, what the people in the business press say, that's more or less the same. You know, the, the, to get the best out of innovation, you need the resources of a large company and the agility of a small company. That's that sort of... Uh, 
that's what people generally seem to think. But I, I got another more general point really to do with um, it is to do with sort of economics or, or kind of organizational design, which is this issue of, you know, the fact that actually specialization um, is uh, is often is you have to trade that off against adaptiveness. Um, you know, in general, look at animals, you know, animals which are very specialized and highly successful are more vulnerable to extinction, for example. You know, it is a trade off. And so there's going to be some element to which the uh, environment you're in, how how changeable is that environment? And, you know, it doesn't make sense to really specialize. Uh, well, if you have a very a product which is entirely stable, maybe water is a good example. Um, you know, perhaps innovation is completely unnecessary. I mean, I just wondered, Roland, do you ever are there people who come and talk to you who, you know, where you think, well, actually, you you don't really need to innovate. You're you're doing fine. Or is can everyone do with a dose of the innovation salts? Well, it's very hard when you run an innovation company to turn people away saying you're doing fine. But um, <laughs> but uh, no, normally when we're having conversations with people they're almost in the opposite situation as it's, it's almost uh, it's often too almost too late you know to do something right. about it um i think there's always room for improvement you know i'm uh uh, uh you, whether even if you're doing incredibly well but there's definitely a time and a place for innovation as well and, and sometimes you should just focus on the the day-to-day this is one of the challenges of running an innovation agency is it tends to be delivered in doses or commissioned in doses which isn't always necessarily the smartest attitude yeah. and Sorry, to innovation as well one thing you said there was yep. it's, it's often or sometimes too late yep. for them to innovate um does that mean the institutionally it's too late or the marketplace has moved on or can you what do you mean by that um well yeah both both of those things i think um the, the number of times i've uh sort of engaged with a company who you know three years ago had a great idea and then they've seen somebody else come and sort of do something very similar and and win in that market when when they could have done it you know in that time it, that just happens again and again and again so um it's that uh inertia and you know often the processes which are governing managing risk and managing you know uh, responsible use of budgets etc actually stop you taking a risk trying something different and maybe winning in a market okay and, and then um, i saw some articles also suggest that companies often seek to implement an innovation strategy when their share point their share price or something drops and they they they're starting to lose their place in the market and they they think that innovation must be the way out because they're trying to throw out all the old ways of doing things and do something new they, they're fixated that it's the old ways of the wrong ways. We need to do something new. Um, we, we're close to wrapping up, um, but um, I've got a question, which is, it's for both groups here, so for Nick and Peter as, as one group, and for yourself, Roland. Can we confer? Do you want a single answer from <laughs> us as a group of two? I do. I would know. We have different We're all individuals here. Okay, so... <laughs> Especially uh, here. <laughs> how innovative... Um, is I mean we tend not actually to talk about um, our own companies here, but um, how innovative is Aleph Insights? Um, can you talk to me about the, sort of the beginning of Aleph and and where you are now and how innovative you believe you are? And I'm going to ask the same question to Roland with uh, 100% open. Um, how innovative do you feel that organisation was and is? Uh, the Aleph boys, you go first. 
Well, I, well, we've got to say it's extremely innovative. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'd say what we are is really highly agile, and that's because we're small, and 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 it's very easy for us to adapt. Um, Which is surprising because looking at you both, you don't look particularly agile. But <laughs> up here, up here, mate. Okay, it's like a bloody you know cheetah <laughs> running across the Serengeti. The uh, so but i think you know being small you have a very limited opportunity to set the market to influence the market so most of the work we do is is very much pulled by the customer and and you know we don't have limited opportunity to sort of ultimately shape their requirement you know and especially that that's true of the work that we do for government you know the requirement comes out pretty fully formed and we and we need to address that requirement where i think we are innovative is the way that we approach those things so it's not so much the product but it's the it's the uh, approach to that product which i would say because of the sort of methods and tools that we've developed and honed um means that the end the thing that we end up delivering is uh, you know usually given that it's going to be informing a decision is going to be resting on a much securer foundation than you know those other rubbishy analytics companies out there so peter one thing uh, um, nick mentioned there was it's not so much the, the end product it's more the approach mm. maybe you can talk to that a little bit uh well yes yeah well actually i was going to say um at a, at a at a higher level of abstraction we're, we're actually not that innovative our approach is really we've just got good people who are engaged and um want to Want, want to do this want, want to build this thing together so in that in that respect you know it's no different to any other company who's got well-motivated good people um uh yeah but our so but our approach yes yeah, so nick going at a sort of working level we 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 want to we, we see value and customers realize value in having an analytical robustness to any product um, once they have it, so, so as long as we can get that that idea in their head, um, somebody wants a, a benefit, a cost benefit study on something. Um, it's very easy just to knock one of those up and just um, just wet finger pull up pull some pull some figures out of the air about what why something might be good or bad. But designing a robust approach to answering that question is of huge value, and that's the kind of innovative thing we do. Is we we want to put analytical. Uh, robust analytical practice in everything we do yeah okay um yeah it feels slightly unusual territory in this because we don't usually talk about ourselves well it's, that's because i think it's a bit naff to talk about your yeah. own company on on your yeah, own podcast absolutely because then it looks a bit too much like we'll, marketing yeah exactly it, 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 it does feel like that but but it's okay we'll let ourselves off on this occasion i think we've um, given ourselves a really good excuse yeah uh roland <laughs> um yeah, I think Aleph Insights are very innovative. Uh, I've enjoyed working with you guys um, in the past. Uh, in you know, you're, you're, you're not so bad yourself. Yeah, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> um, but I think um, there's nothing like trying to sell a proposition to a customer and then they say no, and then you tweak it, you know, and then the next day they say yes. So you're, you're constantly responding to kind of customer demand. That means you can be quite possibly too agile uh, and responsive, but um, it does force you as a small small company to uh, to be very highly creative and sort of tailor what you do um so i think small companies inherently are more innovative and that is definitely true of 100% open in the early days 100% open i think we were um relatively pioneering um open innovation was a relatively new thing we were one of the first players in the market and i think we created quite a different proposition to other people that are out there it has become more competitive there are more people out there doing similar things um I think it remains innovative in some of the things it does, a bit like you were saying, 
with LF Peter. Uh, some of the things that 100% Open do are still, I think, very innovative. And then there are other things which are probably very similar or me too to others as well. But it's the combination. I think the one thing that 100% Open re- remains to this day is, uh, is incredibly collaborative in everything it does. So every project involves a, a hybrid of multiple partners, internal and external, and tries to collaborate rather than compete, including with our sort of what others may see as our direct competitors. And that is quite unusual in a sort of capitalist society and something I, I remain proud of. Well, but, we've, um, we've worked with uh, a range of different consultants and by far and away, the most fun uh, and, you know, the... the, the uh, you were about and, to say him. You were about yeah, to, yeah, 100% open, yeah. No. Are you, are you a consultant? <laughs> I was, sort right. of. <laughs> well, you know, no. so compared to other consultancies which are there to provide some sort of corporate improvement, a lot of them are, you know very interchangeable and you know they're sort of uh, young bright chaps in suits saying things with two by two matrices uh 100% open it's a whole different experience it's yeah, great. we have three by three matrices that yeah <laughs> three by three by seven by 16 <laughs> okay so look this is in danger of just turning into a big uh back slapping it is a bit yeah. um but look i just to round things off i don't know uh, so i want to ask a question Your favorite innovation right in history this could be from and you're not allowed to say the internet um and you're not allowed to say anything to do with Star Wars either. Um, so it could be in history, sorry, in, in technology. It could be in the realms of fiction. It could be biological, um, in which case I guess we're talking about evolution. Um, good I've got one. Okay, go yeah. for it, Roland. Um, obviously running an innovation agency, this is a question that I've asked other people. So my example is deliberately counterintuitive because it's probably not one that many people would na- naturally choose but for me it's the the Fosby flop in the 1968 Olympic Games Dick Fosby on the biggest world stage chose to go completely against the at the time uh, prevailing way of conducting the high jump smashing the world record and transforming that sport forever and I one of the reasons I choose that is because it's an innovation that doesn't require any technology whatsoever and there's far too much techno uh, um, obsession in the world of innovation and actually if you can switch your mindset and be brave and try something different especially on a big stage that's incredibly innovative and so dick fosby is my yeah and, of the and week. i guess you know the mark of that is that you look at it and you go why the hell did no one try that before exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. i suppose he kind of asked himself he, tra- he said like this is a prob- this is a better way of doing this this is a, but is it not is it allowed is there is there anything stopping me from doing this and there wasn't so you, you, you the idea is to get over the bar any way you want unassisted and that's kind of like the rule isn't it so, yeah but so, so sorry i know you're trying to wrap up but just apparently and i'm a bit of a basketball geek and apparently in basketball it's a lot more efficient to throw free throws which is the basketball equivalent of taking a penalty underarm than overarm but still to this, and there was a player, I can't remember his name, who in the 1950s used to throw underarm and he had like a 98% free throw percentage. But still, they but still to this day, the, everyone does it overarm with a much lower percentage. Because it looks cool. It looks cool and, and people feel like it's uh, they look silly. And so there's this kind of peer pressure, even at this elite sport level. Yeah, no one wants people. to be that one So you're player. saying that if I, just, if I start playing basketball now oh. and, and throw underarm, I could be in the NBA I think there are possibly yeah. other factors yeah. that may well, if we start come own, into play if we start our own team we can clean up uh, in the NBA yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter um, I think okay it's a bit abstract but the written word so written language not just language but the written language kind of like 
key point in human history that has enabled so much more to happen, so much more learning and so much more technology. Without having, we always had, we had language a long time before we wrote it down, um, and that got us so far. But it's only when we started writing ideas down did we explode in terms of the amount of things we could you do. You start to build on stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nick, I would go with the good old fashioned piano. What because of I think it illustrates a lot about successful innovation in that it it builds very clearly on its precursor the the harpsichord. Um, but tries a whole different mechanism to produce the sound of banging the string rather than plucking it. And, uh, you know, when, when the piano first came along, you know, people didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, it was only when you then you have people like Chopin, you know, really showing everyone what a piano is capable of that you cannot get on a on a harpsichord, uh, you know, and it, which is actually often innovations. The thing that people are going to do with innovations is not known by the person who creates them. And and so I think the piano really is a good illustration of that. You know, how, how the, um, the the vision of the piano creator was was not realized till, you know, many decades after after, you know, they were first built. Okay, um, I'd like to have one myself. I can't think yeah. of one actually. No. I can't. Um, I'm too busy listening to you guys. Well, you're a film guy, isn't there a film innovation? Color film. Color film's a bit like black and white film, though, isn't it? But with more colours. <laughs> it's yeah. it's for that kind that. of insight that's, that you pay yeah. these guys. Yeah. <laughs> in, invoices in the post. <laughs> um, okay, my one's really specific and is not particularly world changing. Okay, it's really simple. Actually, it's very personal. This is what got me into filmmaking. Is there was um, Canon um, brought out a camera in about 2010, which was um, a, a DSLR, digital SLR, and um, they one one thing they did with it was they added a video function. Now there were at the time there were already other cameras, not necessarily DSLRs, but there were other cameras around which had a digital function. Uh, sorry, a um, a video function, and they were okay. But they just did this as a, a kind of an afterthought add-on. But the video function was so good was that suddenly you could create amazing, beautiful films that were um, the same quality as cameras that would normally cost 20000 30000 pounds. Suddenly you could get it because of the large sensor. You could get this for like two or 3000 pounds. And I happened, not entirely by chance, but I sort of, I, um, I stumbled across this camera um, and one of the reasons I went for it was because of the filmmaking capabilities. And um, and so that was my path from become, going from being a hobbyist photographer to becoming a professional filmmaker. And that transition actually happened for thousands of people around the world. And so unwittingly, Canon transformed the world of filmmaking as we know it. And actually, all of us will have seen films by people. On If, you ever, if you're ever on the internet and you're ever watching a film, there's a good chance that you will have been affected by, by this because it was able to proliferate. proliferate so thanks suddenly. to that camera, you went from having a good, secure job uh, <laughs> with a steady paycheck to being a, so, basically a bum. Yeah, to being yeah. a jobbing podcast yeah. host, basically. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Canon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll wrap up there. Um, a final word. Anyone want anything to finish off on? If, if I think I'd like to go to Roland, if you would like to finish off on anything, anything you'd like to finish off with on one sentence, you don't have to. Um, uh, I'm fine. I've enjoyed it. Your Canon example just reminds me of uh, my favorite answer to uh, a similar question that I used to ask in workshops uh, um, about an innovation that has had a sort of a 10 times uh, increase in performance speed costs or something similar to your Canon example. Mm. And one guy, 
an academic at the University of Durham, I seem to recall, said his favourite innovation was screw-top wine because it allowed him to open his bottle of wine 10 times faster than wine with a cork. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's my final comment. Make like that it. what you will. I like it. I like it. Okay, uh, we're going to stop there. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights and with our special guest, Ronan Harwood. Thank you very much for being with us. Um, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.